Uh, but let me read this one here, um, Christ the Word. My Father, in a world of created changeable things, Christ and His Word alone remain unshaken. Oh, to forsake all creatures, to rest as a stone on Him, the foundation, to abide in Him, to be borne up by Him. For all my mercies come through Christ, who was designed, purchased, promised, He's affected them. How sweet it is to be near Him, the Lamb, filled with holy affections. When I sin against Thee, I cross Thy will, love life, and have no comfort or no creature to go to. My sin is not so much this or that particular evil, but my continual separation and disunion, my distance from Thee, and having a loose spirit towards Thee. But Thou hast given me a present, Jesus Thy Son, as mediator between Thyself and my soul, as a middleman who in a pit holds both Him below and Him above, for only He can span the chasm breached by sin and satisfy divine justice. May I always lay hold upon this mediator as a realized object of faith and alone worthy by his love to bridge the gulf. Let me know that he is dear to me by his word. I am one with him by the word on his part and by faith on mine. If I oppose the word, I oppose my Lord, who is he most near. If I receive the Lord, I receive his word wherein he is nigh. O thou who hast the hearts of all men in thine hand, Form my heart according to thy word, according to the image of thy Son. So shall Christ the word and his word be my strength and my comfort. Amen. Amen. Anyhow, those are available for those who are interested. Well, we're pressing on. Welcome. We're pressing on in our Advent series. I believe we have one more week after this. And who knows what we'll do next week. Um, but today, uh, we will be in Jeremiah. Um, and spend a little time in the book of Jeremiah. Uh, last week, if you if you remember, we we dove sort of headlong into the book of Isaiah. Again, trying to frame our, our time together over these few weeks around the season of Advent and the particular kind of longing that Advent taps into in our Christian existence. We heard a very powerful sermon this morning about that already. Um, this sense of, of, of a world that's marked by suffering and loss and decay, and also recognizing that the moment itself, this is a good word I thought today, the moment itself of that kind of sense of loss and anticipation is not necessarily healed in the moment um, by... Uh, Empty and hollow words of affirmation, even as those relate to the gospel. I mean, I mean, it's just good. It's good news, but for the moment, it's a lot of pain and sorrow and hollowness. And so, what are we forced to? Well, we're forced into an Advent mode of being. We're forced into a looking forward and an anticipation uh, to the future. And you know, let's admittedly, that's that's not necessarily persuasive or hopeful to everyone. Um, you know, people, uh, John Calvin, who was the, could be a bit of a dour fellow, and I tell, tell people, you got to give the guy a break. He had a lifelong struggle with kidney stones and hemorrhoids. I mean, that's a hard road. Um, and, and writes very descriptively about both, I should say. Um, but anyway, uh, he, you know, Calvin talks in, in the Institutes in a little section that's been pulled out called the Golden Booklet. 
And in the golden booklet, he reflects on the Christian life. And, and he says, you know, in this Christian life, God who loves his children and wants us to know that all good things come from him and him alone will sometimes lay on us in this life a burden that we must bear. Um, whether it's a burden of a difficult family life or an unruly child. These are all Calvin's examples. I think he knew something about it. A difficult spouse, an unruly child, um, a business that fails. I mean, the kind of things that lay us down in this world. And, and here Calvin says God sometimes give, gives these, uh, gift isn't the right term, but let's scare quote them, these gifts to us to... Let us know that this world is not our final resting place, that all of our satisfaction and joys are related ultimately to a future moment. And even the good moments that we have now, I think this is part of the thing that we all feel in the hollowness of Christmas time, right? I mean, you think about it, it's Macy's Day Parade, it's... Um, it's uh, the, the the specials on TV, which we are watching as a family ourselves. Just Friday night, we all popcorned it up, and there goes Chevy Chase one more time. You know, it's, and it's great. I mean, that's a movie that just keeps on giving. Um, you know, uh, you know. So we're we're in it all. And eventually, we'll we'll watch the the uh, you know the, the the Peanuts Christmas special, the Charlie Brown Christmas special, which is all one of the. I mean, you talk about a piece of Americana. There it is, right there every year. And little Linus, you know, comes to the stage with his blanket in tow and the light goes on him and he tells us what Christmas really is all about as he reads Luke 2. But, you know, there's something about this season that's weird and troubling, I think. I, I don't know if you feel. I mean, even, even if you're not necessarily someone who's marked by loss in this season, even if this season is marked by all the good and the joy of nostalgia and memories and you look forward to it, there's still, maybe not for me, maybe maybe not for you, and if not, well, God bless you, but uh, there's this sort of internal gnawing um, that still tells you that, is is this it? You know, it's like, is this all there is? Um, is, there, is, there, is, there, is there more to this? I remember even as a child, you know, the, the anticipation of Christmas morning, and the depression of Christmas evening, you know that, right? You know, so you go, you get, you're so excited, and then you, and then it's there, and the afternoon's great, and then the sun sets, and all of a sudden, this kind of this hollowness begins to set in. It's, it taps into who we are, um, and I think you know this whole notion about the gospel telling us that even the good things that we have in this world, the goodies um, that we're not. We don't not promise them. They're gifts that God gives to us that even those anticipate and knock on a future moment. Um, it's the kind of T.S. Eliot sort of thing where he says at the end of the four quartets that to get to the end is to get to the beginning and to know the place for the very first time. That's the kind of thing I think that we're tapping into into this season that we're in the beginning, and we're experiencing something of the good and the difficulty of life, always commingled. That's how it works, right? Always commingled. And yet we also know that at that future moment when it's there, this is where time, I think, will begin to bend. And I don't understand all this. But time will begin to bend and refract as we, in that moment, will know our initial moments like they were really meant to be known that sort of longing that we have, or even the depth of our relationship, the best 
of our relationship to tell us that even now we know that there, there should be more and then we will know that more for the first time as if it is the true beginning. That That's our season. Right? That's why we're caught here. And that's why I like Advent because Advent brings us right into the moment of anticipating Jesus' birth, which is something that we know happened. But at the same time, it's teaching us to anticipate His coming again, which we haven't seen happen yet. And again, we will know that place for the first time, even though it's the beginning. That's the sort of bending refraction of time that we have in this season of Advent. And I, I certainly feel that. And I'm sure a lot of you feel that as well as you sort of move through the rhythm and the pace of these next next few weeks. And so when we come to Advent, I think not just theologically, and of course that, but also I think existentially, we all feel something. I do at least feel something in this particular season that taps into the very core of our identity as people who are are hungry and we're curious. Um, we're, we're in, in St. Augustine's terms, we're, we're lovers and we're meant to love and to be loved. And in the fullness of our love and the relationships that we have here in this world, they all proleptically relate to something more in the future. And that's what this is about. So I would like to look at Jeremiah today. We did, um, what, did we have, what have we done? We did Abraham two weeks ago. We did Isaiah last week. I mean, and just think what we could have done that we won't. We could have done Moses on the plains of Moab, right? I mean, Moses, thank you for your work and your leadership and uh, the whole law thing. That worked out real well. Appreciate that. And now you get to look up on the plains of Moab onto the promised land, but you don't get to go in, right? I mean, that's Advent kind of waiting, isn't it? Um, we could have gone, and I've thought about doing this, and maybe we will next week. I'm toying with the idea of, of the whole theme in the Old Testament of the barren wife, um, of, of, uh, of Sarah, and then Rachel, and then Hannah, and then Lady Zion. I mean, all of these sort of, this, this is a very heavy image in the Old Testament of, of the barren wife who doesn't have what it is that she yearns and longs to have. It's very, very tender topic to have in the Bible, but especially in, in the context of our, our relationships. There's so many places we could have gone. But we're going to do Jeremiah, alright? That's okay. So if you've got Jeremiah 1, or phones, or Bibles, or whatever, uh, you can turn there. Look at our time. Okay, I'll be sensitive to that. Um, Jeremiah chapter 1, verse 1. The words of Jeremiah, the son of Hilkiah, one of the priests who was an anatote in the land of Benjamin, to whom the word of the Lord came in the days of Josiah, the son of Ammon, king of Judah, in the thirteenth year of his reign. It came also in the days of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, the king of Judah, and until the end of the eleventh year of Zedekiah, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, until the captivity of Jerusalem in the fifth month. Now, when you hear that, you go, that's, that's a lot of words. That's a lot of Jehoiakim, Jehoiakim, Zedekiah. I mean, honestly, every time I look at Jeremiah and situate him historically, I have to, I have to diagram it out again. All right. Which one first? Jehoiakim, Jehoiakim, Zedekiah. Go, okay. Got it. You know, I've got to sort of work through it. But this is without doubt the most cataclysmic moment of Judah's history, the southern kingdom. And this is the moment that, for them, functions as a kind of before and after. I don't know what the analog would be for us in American culture, but maybe the Civil War or World War II, probably more the Civil War, I would think. That, that's a real 
before and after. It's a sort of cataclysmic national event that shapes the, the whole future of a, of, of, of a national identity um, and brings the national identity to the point of fracturing to breaking down to non-existence. That, that certainly is happening in Judah. And what's going on? Well, this is Jeremiah who's ministering in the days of King Josiah. Now, this is, okay, here we go. It's a Bible uh, 101. Um, Josiah, good king, bad king. Good king, all right? Now, you remember, the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom, they split apart. And the northern kingdom, how many good kings were there? Goose egg, right? Not a one. Right? And that's why God took care of them about 150 years earlier than what he does with Judah. So they're off the scene now. Um, and then here's uh, the southern kingdom, and they have a kind of back and forth. They bandy back and forth between a king that's righteous and in the language of the, of the, of the Deuteronomistic historian, and they do what is right in the sight of the Lord, right? Or they do what is evil in the sight of the Lord. Josiah is way up there. I mean, Josiah is not only is he a, a righteous king, Messiah language is predicated on Josiah. He's a Mashiach. He's a Messiah. He's, a, he's an anointed one that's bringing the law and the proper worship of God back to center stage. So Jeremiah is ministering in his time, but after Josiah goes off the scene, then his son Jehoiakim goes on to the throne, and then Jehoiakim makes some very bad decisions when it comes to the geopolitical situation as Neo-Assyria gave rise to Neo-Babylonia, and he makes a bad call and ends up he ends up being deported in 597 with a whole group of the best of the young men and women from Judah. This is probably when Daniel and Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego all go off into Babylon. So that happens in 597. Then they put on this puppet king in his absence, Zedekiah. Zedekiah rules on the throne as well. He's the son of Josiah. And he makes a very, very bad decision with Nebuchadnezzar, who is a very bad hombre. Right? That's shouldn't say that anymore. That's kind of got belong. Anyway, um, politically, I can't say that anymore now. Um, but uh, he's a, he was a very, very difficult, uh, difficult guy, Nebuchadnezzar. Um, and, and Zedekiah makes a bad call. He thinks out of sight, out of mind with Nebuchadnezzar. Stops paying his tribute to him. Well, note to self, if you're dealing with Nebuchadnezzar, it's never out of sight, out of mind. He comes back in 588 B.C. He sets up a, 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 his battalions around the city of Jerusalem and he starves them out for two years. I mean, it's horrible. This is, this is the siege of Jerusalem. This is the kind of stuff that you read in the book of Lamentations that makes your stomach turn. It's built out of that particular moment. And, and here's Nebuchadnezzar and he's doing all that. And guess where Jeremiah is during all of that? Inside the city walls, ministering the prophetic word, giving God's word to Zedekiah. You know what his word to Zedekiah is? His word is, hey, um, you need to surrender. And Zedekiah says, not exactly the word we were looking for. You're going to prison, right? And there goes Jeremiah down. Um, and then Jeremiah ministers all the way from the reign of Zedekiah. Zedekiah is then killed by Nebuchadnezzar in a horrific, I mean, I don't even describe it. It's horrible how he's killed. And then they put another puppet governor on the throne named Gedaliah. And, and Jeremiah ministers during the reign of Gedaliah. Then Gedaliah says, I think we should all go to Egypt. What do you think, uh, Jeremiah? And of course, I mean, it's like, have you not read the prophets before? Never trust in Egypt. It's like, there's one thing the prophets all agree upon. Don't trust Egypt, right? So, Jeremiah, do you think we should go to Egypt? Jeremiah's response, no. 
I don't think we should go to Egypt. Well, guess what? We're going to Egypt. And you're going with us. And for all we know, Jeremiah dies as an exile himself in Egypt. Never going back to his, his homeland. I mean, it's, a, it's a horrific story. This is the burden that Jeremiah is placed with. And I, I want you to hear this from his call uh, in these first few verses here. And by the way, just a quick thing. Jeremiah is a priest from the region of Anatote. This is another bird, and we don't get anything about this, and I'm reading in, so you have to forgive me. On, I'm, I'm, I'll, you know, so take this with buckets of salt. Okay? Um, but I, I have to imagine that there was a kind of existential burden for being a priest from Anatote. Because you remember when the, temp, the first temple was built, Solomon, there was a debate. Who's going to be uh, the high priest? Will it be Abiathar, or will it be Zadok? And if you know your handle... And you've been watching Netflix The Crown, um, which is outstanding, by the way. Uh, but if you've been watching that, then you know who wins out, right? What's, it's handled as a famous piece, right? Zadok the priest. Zadok wins out. Okay, Zadok. So what happens to Abiathar? Well, Abiathar gets banished to the region of, guess where? Anatote. All right. So here, I don't know how you would think of that. It's, um, you know, he lives in... He lives in Columbiana, right? Um, he's he's a, a, a member of the priestly tribe in Columbiana. I like Columbia, so I don't, but um, and and he's not in the urban gentrified center of the royal and the religious elite. He's from Anatote, and he's called from Anatote to bring a prophetic word against those who are all the religious and the political elite in the city. And the the, uh, the national capital. So this is this is Jeremiah's a lot lot on this man. And listen to what God says to him in verse four. I, the word of the Lord came to me saying, "Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you." Um, I don't want to get waylaid here, but that uh, that said of no one else in the Bible, no one else. Uh, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Now you'll find things said something like, "While you're in the womb, I called you." But that word before is unique to Jeremiah. It's fascinating, actually. And it must have come as a shock, right? I mean, here he is, and we're going to find out he's a young man, probably, I guess, a mid to late teenager. And, and here God tells Jeremiah, before you were even formed in the womb, I, I had set you apart and called you to be a prophet. I mean, this is, this is Jeremiah finding out that the only reason I exist, I mean, my whole existence is on the built on the basis of God's call on me and knowledge of me before I was even born. I mean, if you talk about sort of a fatalism or determinism, I mean, here it is. It's like you, I mean, I've got bad news for you, Jeremiah. You exist for one reason. I mean, I brought you into this world for one reason. And you're going to be my prophet. And guess what? Jeremiah responds the ways in which most prophets respond when it first comes to them. Uh, our Lord God, verse 6, I don't know how to speak. I'm just a youth. But the Lord said to me, Do not say I am only a youth. For to all to whom I send you, you shall go, and whatever I command you, you shall speak. Now, if you read an edge into this, like if you feel like this is a little bit on edge, God's being a little testy here with Jeremiah, I think that's right. I I, I think God is um, using that parenting line, which I told myself I wouldn't use, but I do it. Has, I can't say it's been very effectual, but I use it. Um, why should I do that? Well, 
Because I told you to. Right? Um, and here's Jeremiah saying, I don't know how to speak. I'm just a youth. And God says, well, that's really beside the point. I, I told you to do it. And you're going to do it. Whatever I command you, you're going to speak. And then God raises the ante in verse 9. And he says, do not be afraid of them. For I'm with you to deliver you, declares the Lord. Then the Lord put his hand out and he touched my mouth. And that's not a surprise. We saw this in Isaiah 6 last week. Right? God touches the mouth of his prophets. And the Lord said to me, Behold, I have put my words in your mouth. See, I have set you this day over nations and over kingdoms. And here you English people out there will appreciate this. God describes this setting apart and calling through six infinitives. Alright? And listen to these. To pluck up. To break down. To destroy. To overthrow. To build and to plant. You hear those? To pluck up, break down, destroy, overthrow, build, and to plant. And if you think about that from the standpoint of a ratio, it's kind of it's four to two. Right? Four of these are negative, destructive, plucking up, breaking down, destroying, overthrowing. But two of them are constructive, building and planting. But that basically gets, I think, at the balance of Jeremiah's ministry. A ministry of judgment sprinkled with a ministry of hope. But the hope is just two to, two to four here in the ratio. So it's a heavy burden. And what was Jeremiah's message? I think his basic message we can read in Jeremiah chapter 4 in the first four verses. Here's his message. If you return, O Israel, declares the Lord, you, to me you should return. That's prophet language 101. Return. Repent. Come back to me. If you remove your detestable things from my presence and do not waver, and if you swear as the Lord lives in truth and justice and in righteousness, the nations shall bless themselves in Him and in Him they shall find glory. For thus, thus says the Lord to the men of Judah and Jerusalem, break up your fallow ground. Don't sow among the thorns. And here's the, the appeal to the heart. Circumcise yourself to the Lord. Remove the foreskin of your hearts, O men of Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem, lest my wrath go forth like fire and burn with none to quench it because of the evil of your deeds. That, that's You want to know Jeremiah's message in a nutshell? There it is. And he's going to say it in multiple different ways. But the message in, in sort of brief is a return to the Lord. And what does returning to the Lord look like? It looks like the circumcision of the heart. I mean, this is what the prophets go after. From Isaiah all the way to Malachi, the prophets are after a very particular problem. Namely, um, external religion devoid of the circumcision of the heart. I mean, it's here, here he's saying, it's like you, you do all your ritual acts, your, your ritual acts of circumcision, which make you identified in our covenant community. You do your ritual acts of making yourself pure for temple worship, but, but you're, you're rending your, this is what Joel says, you're rending your garments in acts of repentance, but you're not rending your heart. Rend your heart, not your garments. And as you know, through the prophets, God will give some fascinating illustrations of people who actually do rend their hearts and not their garments, like the sailors in Jonah chapter 1, 
like the king of Nineveh in Jonah chapter 3. I mean, all the wrong people are showing the people of God, this is what it looks like to repent, right? To rend your hearts and not just your garments. And here's the horror, I think, of Jeremiah's ministry. This is all building something positive, so hang in there. (laughs) Set you up a little bit. Is Jeremiah chapter 18. A text many of you will be familiar with. I would imagine most of you are. Now the word, and I won't read it. I'll paraphrase it. We'll kind of go through this. The word came to Jeremiah from the Lord. Arise and go down to the potter's house. And I'm going to let you hear my words through what you see. Through a metaphor. So I went down to the potter's house and there he was working at his wheel, which is a pretty awesome thing if you've ever seen someone do that. Sort of work the wheel. And the vessel he was making was of clay and it was spoiled in the potter's hand. So he broke it down and then he reworked it into another vessel as it seemed good to the potter to do. So here you get the scene as a Patrick Swayze, I guess. Um, Bad image. Shouldn't have brought that up. Um, Then the word of the Lord came to me. Um, O house of Israel, can I not do with you as the potter has done? These simple illustrations. In other words, can I not see you and the problems and the faults in your clay and not break you down and build you into a proper vessel? Can I not do this? That's what I want to do. And then he goes back to his simple message at the end of verse 11. Return everyone from his evil way. Amend your ways and your deeds. I don't want to break your clay apart. But I will, unless you return. And then verse 12, which I actually think are some of the saddest words in all of the Bible, especially the Old Testament. Listen to what the people say in response to this. God's pleading with them to return. He's calling out to them, don't be clay that I have to break down. This is what he says in verse 12. But they say, that is the people, Jeremiah, your words are in vain. You're, You're wasting your breath. We're going to follow our own plans and we're all going to act according to the stubbornness and the evil of our own hearts. That was a response. Jeremiah, save your sermons. You can go preach them somewhere else because we're not going to do a thing. So that's the that's a heavy burden, I think, um, to Jeremiah and his call. And despite, and by the way, the book is riddled with this kind of language. That's why Jeremiah is called the weeping prophet. But despite that, I want you to listen to this quote from Ronald Clements, Old Testament scholar. He's been around for a very long time. I think he's still alive. Listen to what he says about the book of Jeremiah. In a quite striking fashion, Jeremiah, who has in popular estimation been remembered as, quote, the weeping prophet, end quote, was the prophet through whom the message of hope for the rebirth of Israel came to the fore. End quote. In other words, for all the heavy burden that Jeremiah himself bore, we find fewer words of hope that are grander and richer than what we find in the book of Jeremiah. And the place where you find that most is in that place called the book of Consolation, which is Jeremiah chapter 30 through 33. And I wanted to read you one text from this, Jeremiah 33, 14 to 16. Which, by the way, in year C of our lectionary cycle is the first reading of Advent. 
Sunday Advent. So listen to these words from the heavy burden of Jeremiah's particular moment. Behold, he says, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will fulfill the promise I made to the house of Israel and to the house of Judah. In those days and at that time, I will cause a righteous branch to spring up for David. Now, does that sound familiar to you? This language of righteous branch? We heard it last week, right? Out of Isaiah chapter 11, verse 1. And what, what's the whole image here of the branch? It's life on the far side of destruction. It's the cut down tree in the middle of the forest that has some sprouts coming out of it that, that witness to us something about the character of our God. I mean, this is the character of God in the Old and the New Testament. God is the one who raised Israel from the dead in the Old Testament and He raises Jesus from the dead in the New Testament. In other words, we pick our God out of a lineup of gods because His character is one who takes things that are dead and He makes them alive again. Which, by the way, I think is our ultimate hope, but also a hope in the transitory character of our lives in this world as well. This relationship that I have with X, God, is broken. It's dead. It seems like it's a lopped off tree. Can you make it alive again? He doesn't always, right? I mean, again, we, so there are, we, we exit this world with disappointment and loss. I mean, there's no doubt about it. But He does, and He can. And there's no reason for us not to be filled with hope that He might. I mean, maybe God will come into this lopped off tree in my life and breathe new life into it. He might not, and I might carry that burden till my grave, and then I'll see that tree in fullness on the far side, and that's okay too, or at least, maybe it's not okay, but I'll live into that. But who knows, maybe he'll, maybe he'll breathe life here. That's what he does. Some of you I know could stand up and give living word to that, I think. You know, moments in your life where you thought, this is it. I mean, that, 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 my, my, my rationale for existence is gone. Um, and then all of a sudden, you know, a few years have gone by and, and there's, a, there's some green sprouts coming out of a lopped off tree in your own life. I mean, it's, it's the character of God to do that, to take things that are dead and to make them alive again. And that's, that's the word that Jeremiah is giving. Oh, and I meant to tell you this. Look at verse 1 of 33. This is the word of the Lord that came to Jeremiah a second time while he was shut up in the court of the guard. I mean, that's, that's, I love the context of where Jeremiah is writing the book of consolation from the prisoner's guardhouse under Zedekiah's rule when who knows, Nebuchadnezzar is firing off the evening cannon to let him know that he's still there. I don't, don't know how that goes, but I mean, it, this, this is where Jeremiah is. He's in prison. He's, he's in house arrest saying the days are coming when what you're experiencing right now is not the final word, but the days are coming when God will bring a righteous branch. What's this branch going to do? Well, he's going to execute justice and righteousness in the land. He's going to take that which is wrong and off kilter. He's going to take the crooked things of our world and he's going to make them right and just in our land. Verse 16, In those days Judah will be saved and Jerusalem will dwell securely. Cannon fire again, right? And this is the name by which it will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. I want to talk about this for two seconds and then we'll... Do we have time for questions? No. Um, 
but uh, the name by which the city will be called is the Lord our righteousness. Jeremiah is having some fun here. Um, the name here is Yahweh um, Zedekinu. Right? Can you hear that? Zedekinu, right? The Lord our righteousness. You know the name of the king who was on the throne right then? Zedekiah, right? The righteousness of the Lord. So what he's doing is he's inverting Zedekiah's name. Now the king, the, the, the bad king, the puppet king, the king who's unwilling to listen to the word of the Lord, he's taking his name and he's inverting it. In other words, by the inversion of the name, he's saying, just so you know, the future, this is a political subversion here from, I mean, the power of the pen, right? Political subversion via prophetic poetry. Um, Zedekiah, the opposite of him is what you're hoping for, right? That's what you want. You want the opposite. You want the dark matter of, of, uh, you know, of Zedekiah. Because he's going to bring justice and he's going to be righteous, righteous and, and the name of the city will be the Lord our righteousness. Now, this is what I find so fascinating about Jeremiah's movement. Back in Jeremiah chapter 23, the prophet noticed that there were bad prophets and preachers and priests in the land. And he calls for loyal and he calls for righteous shepherds. And then you know what he does? He points to the future and he says, well, actually, a righteous shepherd is going to come. He uses branch language again. Promise language, Messiah language. So a righteous shepherd is going to come, and guess what his name is? The Lord, our righteousness. It's the same name predicated on that coming one in Jeremiah 23 that's now being predicated on the entirety of the city. Now this might be pressing it a little bit, but I don't think it is. To recognize, well, how is it exactly that this city itself in its entirety can be called the Lord our righteousness? Because those people who are in that city are the ones whose identity are marked by the one who is fully and completely the Lord our righteousness. It's a derivative righteousness that comes from the one who Jeremiah has already told us beforehand is coming to make all things right. And what is his name? His name is Yahweh, our righteousness. Here's Jeremiah, Advent-like in his perspective, riding under house arrest, shackles around his ankles, as he paints a picture of the future that says, the current moment that you're in is an Advent moment that forces you to look to the future in anticipation that God will make everything new. And how does he do it? He does it through the Lord our righteousness. So Father, this uh, Jeremiah word, this Advent word of hope that even in the difficulties, but Lord, also in the joys of our existence, we look forward to a city whose builder and whose maker is God. And Lord, all of us here know that rarely do we get to enjoy the good things of this life in their purity often sort of mingled with the difficulties of life as well. That taps into who we are, God. And you've given us a picture in the prophets and, and the narratives of the Old Testament that point us to a time when that internal tension and that internal yawning that we have, it will no longer be, we won't remember that feeling, that hollow feeling anymore. We will only know the joy of full exposure to you, our mediator, the Lord, our righteousness. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.